Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 18th of January 2023, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish. We're delighted to be joined by Alex Thompson, bringing us Eastern approaches from the Netherlands, and Debbie Evans, our very own nursing correspondent. Well, we're going to kick uh, straight off with uh, the Challenger tanks, because, of course, according to the British government, 14 Challenger tanks sent to Ukraine are going to transform the war. And I encourage people, <coughs> excuse me, to go to the British Army Twitter page, because you will see that more or less anything to do with our national defence has now disappeared because we're in partnership with Ukraine. But aside from the uh, tank saga, do also look out for the vast amount of what I will call woke agenda, which is clearly dominating British Army policy. And my reasons for that will become clear in just a second. But uh, we'll remind ourselves with uh, Mike's excellent slide that uh, the reality is that the UK and the West are sending uh, too few tanks of too many different types um, too late. And of course, a key point with the Challenger tanks is aside from anything, they use different ammunition to the Leopard tanks. So this will give the Ukrainians a further headache in how they actually uh, keep these tanks supplied with ammunition. Um, but uh, let's remind ourselves also that the reality is that on the battlefield, Ukraine has lost thousands, literally thousands of tanks, and particularly the infantry fighting vehicles. I've just taken some uh, slides here to uh, uh, emphasize the point. But of course, the reality is what is going to happen with the UK and US and NATO supplied infantry fighting vehicles that are already moving into Ukraine, these are also going to be destroyed. And there are plenty of pictures on social media to show the carnage on the battlefield as a result of, of the destruction of these very light weight vehicles, which are vulnerable to Russian artillery and also Russian air power. So this is the tragic reality. More Ukrainians are going to die in these vehicles because they don't have the full range of battlefield assets to be fighting the Russians. Um, Scrapyards full of vehicles. Um, of course, none of this is shown on the BBC, but of course the reality is that social media is now covering for the mainstream media. Uh, but we've also now got the situation where Russia has put in more tanks thousands of Russian tanks on the battlefield with hundreds more pouring in because Russia has the capability to produce and transport these tanks. And of course, these tanks are now making life for the exposed Ukrainian troops truly horrible. And uh, of course, the Russians are able to bring in modern tanks such as the T-90 breakthrough tank, aside from uh, upgraded older models, which they're able to produce in very large numbers because the Russian economic base and the military industrial base is still um, performing exceptionally well. But we've got some things beginning to happen in Ukraine, which I think we need to uh, um, pay attention to. We've had a um, Ukrainian presidential advisor resigning and this was over some comments that uh, he made in relation to the uh, attack on the building block in Dnipro. Um, and uh, what happened there was a missile struck the building and at least 41 civilians died. 
this was uh, quickly blamed purely on the Russians. But let's have, oh, sorry, we've just got a little bit out of sequence here. Let me see whether I can bring that back on screen. Yes, here we are. So uh, this gentleman, Aristovich, uh, said that the Ukrainian anti-aircraft defense system had shot down a Russian KH-22 missile, and that subsequently hit the building, killing 41 civilians. Uh, but very quickly, he was censored, and his statement changed to this. I offer my sincere apologies to the victims and their relatives, the residents of Dnipro, and everyone who was deeply hurt by my, quote, prematurely erroneous version of the reason for the Russian missile striking a residential building. So if you get close to the truth uh, in uh, the BBC's Ukraine, you're going to be censored and you're going to be moved on. But we've got more events today, which I think are significant, tragic, but significant. Um, so this is the BBC headline, who was Interior Minister Denis Monastrovsky. You'll have to correct me on that, uh, Alex, struggling a bit on that one. But the reality is a helicopter crash near Kiev, and we've got more uh, Ukrainian officials who've now died. And these are key people around Zelensky. Um, so this is the report on it, that he'd been a long-term member of the Ukrainian government. He'd become the country's interior minister in July 2021. Um, and uh, it said he initially pursued a legal career in private practice, but then he entered politics. And he was part of the team uh, behind Zelensky's successful, quote, long shot bid for the presidency in 2019. So key people um, here, but of course another man was killed alongside him, Enin, a former intelligence officer and a top lawyer who'd been in post since September 2021. So Alex, I'll just come across to you and uh, say that it's clear that all is not going well around Zelensky at, at the moment. He's had a lot of conflict with his top military advisers. He seems to be able to override them. And this is largely shown by the fact that he's committing more and more troops to unsustainable positions in the Donbass. But it seems to me some cracks appearing. What's your, what's your opinion? I think that this morning's crash is a crushing blow for Ukraine. Uh, very underreported in the West is that it was such a sudden loss of control by the helicopter pilots that they crashed sadly directly onto a kindergarten. There's reports of 20 dead on the ground. Horrific as, enough as that is, uh, as you've already mentioned, uh, along with Monastirsky has died reportedly his first deputy, and he was the man who understood how the ministry worked. Uh, being a lawyer and spook by background, Mr. Yefen Yenin. So uh, I'm not suggesting there's no talent pool in Ukraine, quite the opposite. Indeed, it, within the interior minister, they will manage to fill it again, uh, but it will be a massive loss of continuity in the government. And you're quite right to suggest that the discontent is spreading. The mayor of Kiev uh, has been one of the most uh, outspoken of questioners of Zelensky's policy. Uh, General Zaluzhny has also had repeated run-ins with him. Uh, we'll, we'll be seeing more of, of this going on, I'm afraid. Um, you mentioned the tanks as well. There's a lot of discontent, discontent within Western allies 
German, uh, Germany in particular. You've mentioned the British contribution of, risible contribution of 14 tanks. There is also the German Leopard tanks, some of which are owned and operate, or operated by Poland and Finland, and I think France, I'm not definitive on that, on behalf of the German Bundeswehr, Germany still has to give permission for those, for example, from Poland or Finland to be moved to Ukraine while the Germans are still debating whether to supply their own. They would still need to, need to give permission. And we had the ridiculous spectacle of Ben Wallace, the British Secretary of State for War, standing up in Parliament just yesterday and saying, uh, I beg my German colleagues to reconsider their objection. I know they're having a debate on whether tanks are lethal aid, but they're not, because if you use them to defend your country, then tanks are not an offensive weapon, such as the disconnect that's, uh, that's going on now. As for Aristovich, this is the man who, well in advance of the war, uh, said that the price of Ukraine's entry into NATO would be a war with Russia. We've uh, featured that clip before. At another time, he, he praised the, uh, the, the sort of steampunk aesthetic of uh, of, of Ukrainian uh, military engagement with Russia and said that this was something that would take the world to a new, a new stage. I'm paraphrasing, but he was, he was, you know, sort of slavering over the, over the imagery of war. So he's had a long history of, uh, of talking nonsense there. And I think we're about to move on to the well, German. Before you do, Alex, uh, I just wanted to, to, to check this point with you again, because last week when uh, it was still pretty unclear what Britain was going to do with respect to tanks, the Polish government uh, and we covered this on this program, the Polish government were absolutely definitive. We are sending Leopard tanks. Uh, but it turns out that actually they had no right to make that statement because those tanks, uh, they had no permission. From the Correct. Germans. Yes. Yeah. This is, this is the bilateral kind of stuff that we have, particularly you, Mike, have been focusing on for four or five years now. Britain, Poland, Britain, Germany, but also Germany, Poland. Bilateral agreements always, or almost always include a stipulation, even in the old Franco-German joint battalion that used to be there for symbolic purposes, that the troops and their equipment, the, the, the men and the material, remained under, under the command of their National Ministry of Defence. So that the Poles should have known better than that. But the, meanwhile, the Ukrainians were getting extremely excited and saying, we're going to get German tanks from Poland before we get them from Germany. Can you imagine? Well, yeah. Germany seems to be putting the brakes on that. And uh, Wallace was left hopping mad and talking nonsense about tanks not being offensive weapons. <laughs> yes, it's incredible, isn't it? Uh, well, we gave you a little preview of this slide, which we did have, have up a couple of days ago. But let's just remind people that, of course, in Germany, uh, big problems over the whole subject of tanks. And we had uh, Christine Lambrecht resigning um, and uh, her position was was described as a poison chalice or the ejector seat. And we said, well, what's going to happen is that they need warhawks to come in and fill those positions. Um, but uh, Alex, take us on to uh, matters to do with the Ukraine Defence Contract Group. Certainly. And uh, just en passant regarding Mrs. Lambrecht's successor, who was the Interior Ministry of the State of Lower Saxony, Chancellor Olaf Scholz has uh, rather tellingly said yesterday that his new appointee, he is certain will be somebody who's popular with the troops. Methinks there's uh, possibly a hint there that there was an acknowledgement that Mrs. Lambrecht wasn't. Uh, the, the UK ch column chat box decided to dub her last time we featured her Fräulein Doubtfire, which is perhaps a bit unkind, but maybe... Uh, accurate too. Now, for this, we had to go to the Azerbaijan Press Agency, their slogan, we've got news, because they picked up on what seems to now be a dead link from Ukrinform, the Ukrainian state press agency of Soviet vintage. Uh, they had uh, picked up that there was going to be another meeting in the format known as the Ukraine Defense Contact Group. 
That's the defense ministers, ministers for war, to be more accurate, for over 50 countries. And it's also known as the Rammstein format. So this is much broader than NATO or the EU. This is every partner wishing to supply Ukraine with arms in some way or training in, in, in some way or another. This is anodyne enough that the defense ministers, including Lambrecht before she was kicked out or jumped before she was pushed, um, uh, talking to Lloyd Austin, her Pentagon counterpart, and coordinating uh, the supply of infantry fighting vehicles as you covered. However, and I don't have a slide for this but for a, a very good reason, I'm now hearing from, uh, I shall say, a diplomatic source at an international body with good knowledge of the subject, uh, that much less advertised was yesterday, the 17th of January, there was also a meeting of the national armaments controllers. Those are the bean counters at the national defense ministers who know how many of each kind of rocket and tank there is to spare. Uh, and that this, this was deliberately not publicized. Also, I'm hearing that some EU member states are getting very cold feet about the idea of uh, a push by Zelensky's team, not by Ukraine, but by Zelensky. You've already highlighted there's a split growing between Zelensky and the more military men. Uh, Zelensky's idea was to rehash, to warm over his 10-point peace plan originally presented to the G20 at Bali uh, just before Christmas uh, on the anniversary of the outbreak of the war on the 24th of February. Uh, however, I'm told that EU member states didn't like the idea. They were telling Zelensky to go back to the drawing board, get more pointed about it, make it more rhetorical, and more particularly, give European countries more pickings, give them more financial spoils. Otherwise, they wouldn't go for this, what the Americans would call a pork barrel. It's showing once again, and we're going to lead into more proof of this just now, that the West is egging on the Ukrainians more than the Ukrainians, even the, the, their own Ministry of Interior and, and, and Security and, and War Ministry themselves want. So we have just published, uh, it was already, it was still in draft when Mike took this screenshot, but it is now live on ukcolumn.org, a full translation of a long piece by Colonel Jacques Beau, whose history is on the uh, page itself and also on the red name, if you were, name link, if you click on that, uh, a former Swiss colonel with a specialism in Warsaw Pact countries and a well-known commentator, increasingly in English as well now, on the war. His, his piece is entitled The Search for Peace. Uh, it has opinion, but it is a largely an article because there's so many well-made assertions with links in it. So we published it as an article. And I think Mike has got uh, a quotation from the end. Here we are. Just after he said that Ukraine is suffering because of our smug and clueless press in the West, and if it's true for Switzerland, my, how much more true it is of the, of the British press. And he does zoom in on the sun at some point. Jacques Baud says this. He's talking about the collective West from the perspective of a neutral Swiss. Although he deplores that the Swiss are no longer properly neutral. He says for Ukraine to gain victory, it does not suffice to kid ourselves that Ukraine is winning. winning. Since March 2022, our media have been proclaiming Slava Ukraini, Russia's defeat, Russia's collapse, its isolation and the imminent downfall of Vladimir Putin. None of this has happened. And I pause here to say we get we get flack for, for being Putin fanboys, but we and Bode, whom we have gladly translated here, do say, including in this piece, that the Russians have made mistakes, that they do bear responsibility for their actions, etc. Bode continues, our media are engaging in wishful thinking. That's an English phrase that has traveled the length of the continent. So he uses it in the original German as an English phrase. Wishful thinking in our media to satisfy their need for hatred. The reality is different. The inability of European diplomacy to assert itself other than through arms supplies and sanctions, our differing treatment of this conflict compared to previous conflicts, and the condescending signaling towards Africa, largely about them not playing ball on sanctions, have discredited the old continents, of which the Swiss are perhaps the purest representatives, and breathed new life into Eurasia, whose main players are China, India, and Russia. We have failed utterly. I can just say 
uh, go and read this piece because it contains things I wasn't even uh, aware of regards, regarding just how jingoistic some of the presidential party has been in Ukraine, how much they have regarded their own people in the East as untermenschen, and how much the chickens are coming home to roost. Uh, Bode is a deeply humanitarian man, and he, uh, he deplores all the uh, violence. He's not saying in any way, serve the Ukrainians right. He's even uh, acknowledging that the Swiss ambassador in Kiev has every right to stand up for the Ukrainians after they've been invaded. It's just how we've gone about it and our own perception of the, of the causes of the conflict, which is at fault. Uh, if I may, and I think a key question is the we. Who actually are we talking about? Are we talking about policy from nation states, the British government, or are we talking about policies cooked up elsewhere? Good question. But Alex, we should just uh, end this. We should just mention that that uh, translation is with permission. Yes, it's been first uh, appeared in German uh, courtesy of Zeitgeschehen im Fokus and by editorial permission of them, we have translated it into English and we've mentioned that at the head of the piece and Zeitgeschehen im Fokus is now going to carry, I'm told, the English translation that I've made on their own website. Okay, thank you for that. Now, uh, World Economic Forum uh, continues. Uh, it, the main day was yesterday, or at least the, the, the first day was yesterday. Uh, and, uh, well, Klaus Schwab gave his opening address and I thought we might listen to a few uh, of uh, his wonderful words. Your Royal Highnesses, Excellencies, distinguished heads of state and government, Excellencies, dear partners and friends of the World Economic Forum, a very cordial welcome to the 2023 annual meeting. We are coming together under the motto Cooperation in a Fragmented World. At the beginning of this year, we are confronted with unprecedented and multiple challenges. First, our global economy is undergoing deep transformation. The energy transition, the consequences of COVID, the reshaping of supply chains are all serving as catalytic forces for the economic transformation. So those were his opening remarks, and he's talking about uh, economic transformation. And of course, many people suggesting that uh, the World Economic Forum and the, that gathering is the melting pot for global policy. Uh, and uh, well, perhaps this gives us a clue. Here's Mark Carney. We'll just remind everybody what he said back in uh, 2019. Uh, we will not get to net zero in a niche. It requires a whole economy transition. And Klaus Schwab, here we are in 2023, talking about this deep transition of the economy. Uh, just as a reminder, Carney went on to say companies that don't adapt, including companies in the financial system, will go bankrupt without question. Now, some people may say that that's merely an observation from him. But then when we hear what else he said, which was there will be industry sectors and firms that do very well during this process because they'll be part of the solution, but there will also be ones that lag behind and they will be punished. Those were his words. So it's very clear uh, that the uh, transition is well underway. Uh, Klaus Schwab is, uh, uh, seems to be uh, celebrating it there. Uh, but uh, he went on. Let's listen to the next little section. There are superpowers, emerging powers, middle powers, regional powers, rogue states, and also large corporate and social media powers 
all competing increasingly for power and influence. As a result, the trend is again moving towards increased fragmentation and confrontation. Thirdly, our generation has reached a turning point confronted by truly existential problems. Climate change, exploitation of nature, nuclear possible incidents, or even worse, extreme poverty and viruses. They all can lead to an extinction of large parts of our global population. And so, so you've got to ask the question. Well, my question is, who is this man? Of course, he's not reported on uh, the BBC. He's not talked about in British media and elsewhere to any great extent. Who is this man that puts himself up as leader of the world? Uh, uh, this is a very good question. Alex, what are your thoughts on what he said there? Um, even through the hammy accent, you cannot uh, fail to notice the barely contained glee at the idea of the extinction of part of the world's population. Uh, perhaps Kenny will put in the, the show notes my reading with permission again of Johnny Vedmore's article, which when I read it from my YouTube channel, I entitled, Who is Klaus Schwab? Johnny Vedmore, who now writes for UK Column, more forthcoming, is very, very good at uh, uh, wheedling out the backstory of this guy. He was co-opted by a range of people, Henry Kissinger being one uh, in the Harvard milieu. Kissinger himself had pre-war British mentors and, you know, uh, they're in a, in a clutch together, superannuated Germans who tell the Anglo-Americans what to do. They ham up the, the Nazi act uh, to hide the fact that it's a city of and Wall Street and Swiss land as much as it is a German. And, and Schwab is a cross-border figure. His, his backstory going back four generations is cross-border German-Swiss industry making extremely dirty deals on the back of various kinds of slave labor and supplying illegal nuclear technology uh, to various wayward regimes. Uh, Kissinger, uh, who's now very nearly 100, uh, addressed the, the, the Davos crowd yesterday, by the way, by video link. I think he doesn't travel very much anymore. Uh, and said, uh, now is the time, I've changed my mind, now is the time to bring Ukraine into NATO because all the hoo-ha that I said would happen if we did, and which caused me to be tentative and hold back, has happened now anyway, which you can equally well read, as, as with Schwab's stuff, you know. We've caused the chaos, now let us bathe in it. Indeed. Uh, right, well, let's have a, a final clip from uh, Klaus Schwab then, because he's talking about who's helping the World Economic Forum agenda and who's getting in the way. We have the ability to collaboratively build a more peaceful, resilient, inclusive and sustainable world. But to do so, we need to overcome the most critical fragmentation. And the most critical fragmentation is between those who take a constructive attitude and those who are just bystanders, observers, and even go into the negative, critical, and confrontational attitude. So, of course, Alex, it's very easy to have a peaceful world if there's nobody in it. Uh, but uh, I thought it was interesting that, that he was uh, clearly concerned about those who are uh, providing some kind of opposition or resistance to what the World Economic Forum is selling. 
I detected a note of pain in his voice there. You know, how could my children desert me? Um, that's us. We're the naughty boys. We're destined for the camps. But uh, those whom we are seeking to win over by good reason, uh, he resides, he describes as the, the just bystanders. You know, that's it's almost as bad that they fail to be enthused for uh, whatever your preferred sci-fi term is for the new world order, for uh, for the regime or for the uncles or whatever. He doesn't like that either. The hearts and minds just have to be win, have to have to be won somehow. So we're going to have to be got out of the way. And with that in mind, it's no surprise that Rebel News with Avi Yemini, I know a controversial man, but I think a brave one yesterday, turned up at the CNBC uh, local headquarters in Davos uh, and uh, asked them on their doorstep, filming properly and lawfully in public, uh, and, and managed to entice them out, asking them, why aren't you doing your job? Why am I having to do it for you? And Patrick Allen, one of the vice presidents of CNBC, got so shirty that it is Yemini's claim, it's not audible in the YouTube clip published by Rebel News, but Yemini claims that as Mr. Allen, who's a Brit, by the way, stormed back into the CNBC hut in Davos, he said, he'll be punched out for that. So it, it, it's not surprising, really, because CNBC is, of course, like so many other media companies, owned by a, WF, a WEF member with a seat at the table. In CNBC's case, that would be Comcast. Yes. Uh, well, uh, uh, to go along with the uh, Davos conference itself, uh, the World Economic Forum has published uh, this year's Global Risks Report. Uh, so let's just have a quick look and see uh, what they perceive as the global risks over the coming years. Uh, so in the next two years, the cost of living crisis is the biggest risk followed by natural disasters and extreme weather events, followed by what they're terming geoeconomic confrontation. Uh, you or I might use the term war. Uh, and followed by that, uh, failure to mitigate climate change, erosion of social cohesion and social, uh, societal uh, polarization, uh, large-scale environmental damage incidents, failure of climate change uh, adoption, uh, and adaptation, sorry, widespread cybercrime and cyber insecurity, natural resource crises, large-scale involuntary migration is at number 10. Um, and they perceive that over the course of the following eight years that the risk of war is going to decline. Uh, but uh, climate change becomes uh, the top priority. Uh, do you see that? Uh, do you see that risk of war declining? Uh, no, not at all. And I think this is because their plan is not working, which I'll try and uh, introduce to our viewers in the, in, in the next section. Well, let's go on with it then. Well, before we go there, we better get on the subject of bugs. And uh, let's bring in uh, Debbie, because Debbie, you've spotted uh, something to do with the World Economic Forum and what they would have us eating, it seems. I was actually going to offer it to uh, Herr Schwab um, because he could taste it, because this is the latest thing that the WEF are going to be recommending. And we've got beetle burgers. So this is a French bio and uh, biotech company. Sorry, nearly said the wrong company then, biotech company called Yinsect. And this is mealworms and insect larva. It's mixed with sugar. Um, and then you've got your very own beetle burger or maybe chicken nuggets. I mean, whatever next. Maybe we could have McBeetles, perhaps. Um, just saying. Uh, maybe I'd like to serve it up to Herr Schwab today since he's recommending it maybe he could be the first taster what do you think well not just not just today debbie i think today tomorrow every day for the next five years and then we'll check out how he is but against the background of the power that is obviously in that room for the world economic forum decisions being made transnationally is the key thing let's come back to the uh, subject of the war in ukraine and tanks 
And um, I'm going to thank Alex for sending me this article through, Breaking Defence. This is an American publication. But here's the headline. Ukraine war leaves the British Army very uncomfortable with future soldier capabilities. A British Defence Committee heard, that was a couple of days ago, about concerns brought on by the war in Ukraine, the state of British tanks, some Ukraine-bound, and a potential recovery for the Ajax Reconnaissance Vehicle Programme. Um, well, the lady that was speaking to the Defence Committee was Lieutenant General Sharon uh, Naismith, and um, she's Deputy Chief of the Defence Staff. Uh, let's have a look at what she had to say. The Eastern European conflict had, in the first instance, caused the Army to reconsider how to address air defence, uncrewed systems, deep fires and intelligence, surveillance targeting and reconnaissance star capability gaps. That's just about everything, Mike. Yep. Um, all of a sudden, she's worried about everything. Let's uh, carry on. In an attempt to fix the problems, the service, the British Army, has already completed a, a quote, internal balance of investment and continues to look for opportunities to accelerate procurement. But the new approach could be troubled by two realistic constraints, supply chain difficulties and industrial uh, capacity. So this is uh, not looking too good. Um, she says there is a lot regarding our industrial capacity to focus on and recognition that we've not invested in the land industrial base as we would now wish to. What's she talking about? It is difficult to uh, understand her from the language she's using. Basically, she's saying that she has worked out that uh, we haven't got an arms industry. We can't supply the ammunition to ourselves. We can't supply it to Ukraine. We don't have modern tanks. We don't have modern reconnaissance vehicles. Altogether, the army is in a complete mess and is unable to put a full army on the battlefield. Mm. Um, so if we have a look at this lady, we can go to British Army, be the best. And here's a little CV. It says, whilst in command, she's been responsible for providing information and communication services, command support and capability development in support of formation headquarters up to and including allied Rapid Reaction Corps and the UK Joint Force Headquarters, higher command appointments with the 1st UK Signal Brigade and General Officer Command of the Army Recruiting and Initial Training Command. So she's had fingers in every important pie, but particularly capability development and recruiting, both of which are in a complete mess. And if we just pop that back on screen again, uh, we've got staff appointments have focused on capability development, which is in a mess, resource planning, which is in a mess, and personnel. So a lot of questions to be asked about this uh, lady and her colleagues. Let's have a look at this uh, future soldier concept. Uh, here's the document. And if we have a look at the uh, contents, why do we need future soldier? What does it mean for our people? How will we be structured? And this initiative from November 2021, supported by a 41 billion procurement package, which we're now being told has been a complete and utter failure. Why has it failed? Well, if we get into the document itself, 
and I encourage people to find it and read it on the internet, what you will see is this is nothing about creating a fighting army. This is a woke agenda which is actually designed to destroy the army from the inside. And let's look at the first priority, the impact of climate change also forces us to examine how we operate. So before we discuss an army and what that army should be doing, the priority is actually climate change. So it's no wonder that we've now got the uh, military and the British Army in such a mess. But if we go further into the document about how we will be structured, this is not about putting a mere 20,000 men onto some battlefield, because according to this document, uh, the British Army is going to be operating worldwide. This is clearly not a national doctrine. This is an international, and I'm going to suggest a globalist doctrine. But the reality is that the war in Ukraine has now said that the British Army is outclassed, outgunned, and incapable of fighting modern warfare of scale. And that is why she has had to make those admissions to that uh, committee. So um, if we put this together and come in at a slightly different angle, we've just seen the World Economic Forum. This to me seems to be the globalist agenda with a reality sting. And if we do it in a, uh, a few bullet points, the British Army, as well as the Navy and the Air Force have been cut to achieve parity with EU forces in preparation for the EU military. That's been disrupted by Brexit, but it's never fully gone away. The British military was deliberately undermined with a woke agenda of diversity, LGBTQ, climate change. There's a lot more. This is the World Economic Forum style transformation agenda. Uh, we've got British industry undermined to destroy national defence capability and create this constant EU partnership working. So British steel cut and given away, specialist steel destroyed, Royal Ordnance uh, shut down, ship aircraft, helicopter, tank, missile and armaments produ uh, production has been decimated. But this is the reality of the sting. It was the globalists, the transnationalists that believed they could use Ukraine to fight and win their proxy war for regime change in Russia. Apologies for the typo there on the basis of Ukrainian lives and Western military technology. But their plan destroyed the military basis, which they thought they were going to be use, using to back Ukraine. So, Alex, I don't know whether you want to comment on that. You may not agree with the angle I've come in at. But if we look at why the British military is in such a mess, to my mind, it's very clear because Britain itself is not acting as a nation state. It's now been subsumed under a wider globalist agenda. I do agree with you, Brian. It's concordant with all the reporting we've done for several years, the folly of the British government thinking that nothing was wrong because it's retained the golden share in our two or three remaining important defence manufacturers. They got transatlanticized. Uh, often the Brexit-inclined uh, press and social media have blamed the Continentals for everything that's gone, in the last, gone on in the last few years. But wherever you look further, you see the City of London. For example, as I mentioned recently on air, Cameron pressing Juncker back in 2014 for the concept of a British EU membership referendum, 
Why was it necessitated? Not because the Continentals were getting impatient with their military unification. Quite the opposite. They were prepared to, to play the long, slow games they had done for decades. No, the City of London was telling Cameron that what they were hearing from Britain and America, from the, the, the key shareholders in the system, was that Britain was uh, dragging its feet uh, in, in creating the transnational and transformational agenda in the military or using the military as a pretext. Therefore, Britain had to ship, uh, shape up or ship out. So it was the City of London that forced Cameron to precipitate the matter, to, to force Juncker's hand. And afterwards, from very reliable sources, I know that Juncker looked Cameron in the eye and said, well, why did you assure me that you would be able to win this referendum, David? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, sticking with uh, military matters, uh, let's come on to Northern Ireland. Uh, and uh, of course, the, uh, the British government has uh, some legislation in the works. It's the Northern Ireland Troubles, brackets, Legacy and Reconciliation Bill. Um, now, this is all about uh, British uh, Army veterans who have been accused of uh, crimes in uh, Northern Ireland. Uh, during the Troubles, 1969 till 1998 or so. Um, and, uh, well, uh, <laughs> there have been court cases going on for many, many uh, years now, or attempts to bring court cases against military veterans in the UK. Now, I'm not uh, going to take any sides here. Uh, people, there were, there were atrocities committed on both sides in the Northern Ireland conflict. Um, but the point here, well, we'll come on to the main point of this at the end, but before we do, uh, here is uh, Chris Heaton-Harris, who's the current Northern Ireland Secretary, saying these amendments that have now been tabled, so they've, they've tabled some amendments yesterday to this, uh, and because this legislation, they claim, will deliver better outcomes for those most impacted by the troubles, including victims, survivors and veterans, while helping society to look forward. So Heaton-Harris saying these amendments reflect the extensive engagement that is taking place and demonstrates the government's commitment to working with all interested parties regarding their concerns and how these might be addressed. The government remains absolutely committed to delivering better outcomes for those most impacted by the troubles. So uh, British serving British military, uh, who are all now retired, um, still coming under massive uh, pressure as a result of continuing attempts to bring prosecutions uh, for what may or may not have happened in Northern Ireland during the troubles. Uh, but in the meantime, as everybody knows, uh, Tony Blair, as part of the uh, Good Friday Agreement, issued letters to the IRA um, telling them that they were no longer wanted by the police. So they were given a blanket amnesty for everything that they did, for any of the atrocities they committed, for any of the unprosecuted murders uh, that they uh, committed, uh, torture and kidnappings and all that kind of stuff. In the meantime, since the Good Friday Agreement, uh, British military veterans have been actively pursued and in some cases hounded literally to their deaths uh, in order to try to bring prosecutions. And Alex, my argument here has always been that, uh, you know, in a conflict zone, there are always going to be problems on both sides of that conflict. But when the conflict is over, the rules need to be applied equally on both sides. And if they're applied on one side with blanket amnesty and on the other side with continuing prosecutions, that's deeply unfair. Now, in this case, um, they're claiming that this bill is going to bring an amnesty for the veterans <clears throat> and that it's going to, uh, but it only brings that amnesty if the veterans absolutely cooperate with the process. If they refuse to cooperate with the process, they'll still be subject to the so-called rule of law as it's being applied in this case. So st there's still quite a bit of unfairness in this because there's no requirement for the IRA to take part in any process. 
As you rightly identified at the end there, Mike, uh, there is a frank admission here by the British government that the rule of law is being suspended for political or what the British government and the Northern Ireland office might call uh, improved outcomes. Uh, Law is being trumped already. I can't help but notice in passing that uh, the Guardian's uh, screenshot you you showed there trivialises the matter by having alongside the piece uh, a most viewed article that a moment that changed me, some uh, writer, is when I began wearing skirts with pockets big enough to hold a wine bottle. Perhaps says as much about the audience as it does about The Guardian, but never mind. No, this is uh, pretty awful. I will try to get to Kenny for the, the show notes a link to the definitive book on Tony Blair's comfort letters to the IRA for those who should read, would, would like to read up on that. You know, the, the big buzzword towards the end of the Northern Ireland Troubles within Northern Ireland was there must be parity of esteem between the communities. And uh, this, if it implies anything, implies equal treatment. But here, to throw a shot, a sop to Sinn Féin, who are increasingly, especially in the Republic of Ireland, being acknowledged now as fake nationalists, as globalists and internationalists, to throw them a sop, uh, the, the promise has been made from Thames House, the joint headquarters of both the Northern Ireland office and MI5, uh, that we will uh, put any veterans through the grind if they do not, in Marxist style, admit their guilt. If they want a fair trial, uh, then they're going to have to have uh, hell to pay. Uh, these will be diplock courts in Northern Ireland because of the uh, one of the first things that happened in the Troubles was that trials in most cases in Northern Ireland were judge only, and that has been conveniently retained for such measures. We covered this, of course, with uh, one particular veteran who sadly died during his, uh, uh, his uh, trial. I do feel convicted that we need to be speaking to more British veterans about this. So uh, don't give up communicating with us if you represent veterans. I know that there's a lot of fraught veterans out there. I'll just close by saying, um, where does this the Armed Forces Covenant, otherwise known as the Military Covenant, sit with this? It became an issue during the coalition government 10 or more years ago. Uh, it was, as they say, rather uh, uh, rather lightly and flippantly these days, it was enshrined in law by statute. The Covenant, which is the British government's and, and all authorities pledge to look after veterans lifelong, uh, not to break the law for them, of course, but to get, treat them fairly. That was voluntarily then signed by all local councils for matters like housing and dependency issues. But it doesn't seem to have been a factor in prosecution, uh, which, as we've been rep- reporting before, the Daily Telegraph uh, took the lead on it, uh, at one point was being pushed by a West Country-based husband and wife team, Red Snapper, that was being based in, if I remember correctly, a disused Cornish Royal Air Force base, specifically to prosecute these old cases. There is a long backstory here, so more recent viewers might not be aware of it. Uh, but I'm afraid this is going to be the painful mockery at the end of the Troubles, as history is written, that Britain threw its own veterans to the wolves. OK, thank you very much uh, for that, Alex. Well, let's uh, bring Debbie Evans in, because if the veterans are being attacked, the wider British public is certainly being attacked, uh, not least through the fact they're not protected against pharmaceutical products. So. Um, what have you been seeing about the um, MHRA over the last couple of days, Debbie? Well, yesterday was the highlight. Uh, it was the MHRA board meeting. And as you know, I hadn't seen the link for it. So I wrote them an email asking where the link for the invitation was. And I got the invite through. So in good time on the 9th of January, you'll see on the right of your screen there, I wrote a very simple question because I'm beginning to think the MHRA need simplicity you know they can't cope with anything complex so my question was when will patients when will patient safety commissioner be invited to the mhra board meeting that was it and i'd been very diligent 
I'd looked at the board meeting agenda, which was on the left of that slide, um, if you just want to freeze frame it when you go back. And clearly on the patient safety agenda was what assurance can be provided by the patient safety and engagement committee. So my question was agenda, I thought. Um, and then when I was at the meeting, I asked some more questions and I know that many of the vaccine injured were there and they've also asked questions. So I took a little snapshot of some of the questions that I asked, which in my opinion were all to do with patient safety. And since the board were talking about pregnancy, it was like I'd got a double, double whammy. So just a couple of the questions, um, you can freeze the screen and read them. I won't waste time reading them, but the one at the bottom uh, was written by me just before the end of the meeting. And I thought it was quite poignant because it says, at the end of the meeting, please can you answer some questions directly submitted from the vaccine injured? They never appear to be included within a board meeting setting. Thank you. And I thought that was quite reasonable. And uh, I'd followed the, the protocol, I'd followed the guidelines. I was expecting my question to be answered. Well, have a little listen to this exclusive piece of footage from the MHRA board meeting yesterday. The public have. Um, and, and as I said right in my early introduction, um, the purpose of this uh, is this is a board meeting held in public. It is not a public meeting. So you know, we will only be taking questions today from uh, that are related to the papers in today's agenda. Um, so I can say that we have received seven pre-submitted written questions from members of the public, but none of them were directly related to today's papers. So they will receive a written reply outside of the meeting. Um, Rachel, as our Director of Communications, I know you've been monitoring the chat function. Can I just ask if there are any questions on the chat function that we need to consider? Yeah, there's uh, one specific question on the chat function that relates to the uh, topics that you've discussed on the agenda this morning. Okay. <laughs> So I wasn't relevant, um, it wasn't worth answering, uh, and it goes along with all the vaccine injured as well. Uh, they didn't care, nobody got their question answered. And then literally two hours after the board meeting, guess what binged into my inbox? Only an email from the MHRA saying, tell us what you think. We're keen to improve our customer services. I've underlined the date and the time because you can see that it's uh, sent at 3.15 p.m. So I read the email and I thought, oh, there's a little hyperlink in there that takes you to surveys. So I wanted to see what they wanted to ask me. And the next slide, it'll show you the survey. And um, I'll let the viewers and the listeners, you can all tell me, should I fill this out? Apparently, it's only going to take two minutes. Um, but they want to know how I contacted the agency, who I am, whether I'm a patient, a government official, a member of the public. Why was I getting in touch? Was my query responded to promptly? Did I receive the help or information I need? How was my experience? Could it have been improved? And could I provide the relevant reference number? So these are the questions they want answered. So you be the judge, shall I answer them or not? Before I answer your question, Debbie, I just want to say that uh, I can imagine a lot of people would be quite depressed at such a bland and dismissive answer from the MHRA to anybody that's asking them 
important questions about the safety of pharmaceutical products. But what you're actually witnessing clearly is reputation management. They are desperately worried because they now know the public is watching them via the board meetings. So now they've got to control the board meetings to make sure that um, how are they doing it? They're controlling it by saying, well, if your question doesn't relate to the papers we've selected, then we're not going to respond to you. This is reputation management. This is because the MHRA is now very fearful that the public is looking at them. And um, would I waste my time filling in their questionnaire? My answer would be no. Don't know about you, Mike. He is silent as taken to agree. That's all I've got to say on the, okay, on the topic. Enough. Fair um, enough. Anyway, if you like what the UK column does, you would like to support us, then please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. Uh, there are options uh, to help us out there. That'd be very much appreciated. Uh, you could pick something up at the UK column shop, uh, but please do share material on the various platforms. Okay. Um, where does that take us to? It takes us to an email. Oh, yes. This very important email. So thank you, Mike. Um, an email that came in um, and uh, what did it say to David Scott? Hi, David, I just wanted to reach out to you and say personally, thank you for everything you're doing in the background for us all. These are people who've been harmed by the vaccines. I really appreciate you taking the time to help support us publicly too. And your section last night had me in tears. Finally, I personally really appreciate you allowing Fiona, that was Fiona Hine, to talk about the truth be told. And that's from uh, Alex Mitchell. And Alex, unfortunately, had his leg amputated, one leg amputated as a result of vaccine damage. But we just wanted to say thank you very much for sending us that. And also a thank you again to Fiona Hind for delivering such an excellent piece via the column. And our interview with Alex is still on the front page of the website, isn't it? Yes. yes. So there we are. Uh, Alex, uh, let's uh, run through a couple of uh, mentions. Uh, first of all, uh, the Motherwell uh, event that you and David took part in up on the UK Column website. Yes, and it's not long now till the next Motherwell event that David has been trailing. That will be on the um, Monday night, the 23rd off the top of my head. Don't shoot me if I've got the date wrong, but uh, that is going to be uh, the, the next meetup. But uh, for safety's sake, check the show notes and previous episodes. I just wanted to put this on screen briefly. Uh, so to, to say that uh, we are aware of audio problems there, including, you know, with some of the interviews we do, um, don't send us narky emails about it. Sometimes, as in this case, we have to record things on the spur of the moment. We are continuously improving what we do. We don't have a huge budget for professional sound men to keep tailing us around. We have to do it ourselves. We're not nincompoops with this stuff, but occasionally it's just on the boundary of comfortable audibility. And we're well aware of that uh, before we decide to publish. Uh, David Scott's stonking speech, which came in at just under 10 minutes long, given in front of the Scottish Parliament, ugly building, ugly ideas, ugly sources, is now up as well on the homepage. And here is how he finished the piece. Not far from here on the mound, there is a statue of Scots reformer John Knox. I will end today with a quote from him. Resistance to ty tyranny is obedience to God, a quotation well known to our American cousins from Jefferson. But it goes well back before that to the Reformation. And David ended uh, in home turf, as it were, in Edinburgh, where Knox did his work. Let us therefore join together in obedience to the God of truth and oppose the father of lies. Oppose the folly of Nicola Sturgeon. Oppose the attempt to transform our society against our will and to the detriment of our children. Let us resist tyranny. Another one of David's memorable speeches, I think, and well worth the transcript read. And as we just mentioned a moment ago, 
dear Alex Kelly, who is really giving us a heart-rending tale. I'm sure Debbie will tell us more in a moment about the tragic death of her mother, Anthea, very early in the jab wave in January 2021. The date there has been corrected. It was not the 6th. It was the 28th that uh, Anthea died uh, four days after her first uh, AstraZeneca jab. Uh, that has been really uh, disconcerting to people. But Alex Mitchell uh, it was emailing us about this particular interview, and you can read his uh, story too, written up by Ian Davis, if you search ukcolumn.org using the search function and type in Mitchell with a T. Uh, from the last segment, it will be in the show notes too in a couple of hours, and by show notes, we mean the page that hosts the video on ukcolumn.org, the news video. Um, if people want to find out about the Armed Forces Covenant, go to armedforcescovenant.gov.uk. I know they don't claim it's directly relevant to legal prosecutions, but it is there and it's embarrassing for the government. And the book, which will be there as well, is called Tony Blair and the IRA, colon, the On the Runs scandal, or something like that. And it's by Austin uh, Morgan, Austin with an E-N at the end. Yeah, OK. Thank you, Alex. Uh, back to well, Debbie. Back over to uh, Debbie. Yes, joint letters. Yeah, I, I just want to, this is quite a serious segment, actually, and we've been getting a lot of emails and I've been hearing a lot of stories and my phone has not stopped ringing. It's been literally ringing off the hook. Um, I'd like to thank Josie in, in the office for sending me through so many of very similar stories that we're hearing from relatives and loved ones who have got their own relatives, their own friends, their own family seemingly trapped in hospitals, isolated. Um, and I would like to show you in this segment a few signposts for you to go and have a look at, because as you know, I'm not here to tell anybody what to do. I'm just here to, to show you a few dots and people can join their own dots and find their own truth. But I would like to say that normally my blog is scattered with lots of little different stories. But this week, thanks to Alex and Josie, it's gone up fairly early. And everything that I'm saying in this segment can be linked into my blog. So if there's anything that you want further referencing, just have a look at my blog, which is on the front page. I do believe that this segment may make, may save lives. So um, it's a serious one. So we'll start off, first of all, with a, a letter, an indemnity in response of coronavirus letter that has been sent by the NHS. Now, what concerns me is one particular, I mean, I've put, a, I've, I've put a, a little example of the letter there, but at the bottom you'll see it says, the professional regulators and the four chief medical officers have set out guidance to reassure those working for the NHS that where they need to work in different ways, that they should be supported to do so, that the regulators will take extreme circumstances into account and that the usual regulatory frameworks and the need to act in line with the principles of good practice set out by the regulators will apply. Now, this essentially means they can pretty much do what they want. Um, we've seen an indemnity for the jab. Now we're seeing indemnity for COVID. And what I'm going to look here is going from jab to MAB. And that'll make sense to you in a minute. But just to remind people of what the Black Triangle scheme is. So the Black Triangle scheme is put there to show you that a medication or a therapeutic is under extrapharmacovigilance. And one example there that you can see is remdesivir, which is otherwise known as a beclure. 
So this is a black triangle. You can see where I've put the arrow, there's a little black triangle. So I just want to remind people what a black triangle medication is. And then I want to take folks straight back to the beginning to the PCR test. Because if we look at the PCR test, we know that they're unreliable. We know that they should never have been used. We know that they're dangerous. And we know that really they should have been binned and never rolled out in the first place. However, a PCR test is still required to get into hospital. And what really worries me is that the NHS seem to be making up the rules as they go along. We have no mandates. We have no guidance with regards to COVID PCR tests. And yet that little test can potentially change your life. And the way I'm going to show you now how that can change your life, because if you need to go into hospital or if you need to go for a procedure in hospital, even as an outpatient, or sometimes if you have to go to your GP surgery for a, a procedure, you may be required to take a PCR test. Now, I'm just gonna put up on screen the COVID-19 standard operating procedure testing for inpatients. This also works for patients that may need to go in as an outpatient for an inpatient procedure, if you get my drift. So this underlines where tests should be, should be given. And most, most patients, I'm being told, are even tested on an ambulance prior to them going into hospital. They're tested in A&E, and even if you're going into hospital from home, you're asked to show evidence of a negative PCR test. I cannot begin to tell you what a crucial move this is, because without this, we wouldn't be going onto a, an, another pathway, which I'll show you about in a minute. But can I just show you two videos, because I said we were going from jab to map, and what I'm concerned about is that whilst everybody knows about the injection and the dangers of the injection, do you know what you're going to get further down the line? So there's a couple of very short videos. They're only a minute long just to show. And I'm really sorry that they're a bit childish, but they were the shortest I could find for the news. So I, I do apologize for that. But first of all, let's look at a video. I think we've got the first one on antivirals. And so just, just have a look at this. Over the course of the pandemic, various antiviral medications and monoclonal antibodies have been shown to be effective against COVID-19 at home or in an outpatient setting. These include nirmatrelvir and ritonavir in combination, also called Paxlovid, remdesivir, also called Veclury, Molnupiravir, also called Ligavrio, and Bevtilovimab, which is a monoclonal antibody. Once a person is tested and diagnosed with COVID-19, treatment should start as soon as possible. For Paxlovid and Ligavrio, treatment should be given within five days of symptom onset. And for Veclury and Bevtilovimab, treatment should be given within seven days of symptom onset. Early treatment can make a big difference. For example, data from over 500,000 patients showed that fully vaccinated individuals over age 50 treated with Paxlovid were three times less likely to be hospitalized than untreated individuals. Now there has been a concern about viral rebound after the use of some antivirals, but it's now known that even untreated patients can have worsened symptoms after initial improvement. Bottom line, 
for patients at risk of severe COVID-19, full vaccination and starting an antiviral medication soon after symptom onset might prevent hospitalization and even save their life. Okay, so that was just a little one-minute video on antivirals. Have a look at this on monoclonal antibodies. The FDA has authorized monoclonal antibodies as a treatment for COVID-19. But what are monoclonal antibodies? When we get sick, our body's immune system creates antibodies to fight off an infection. Monoclonal antibodies are based on these natural antibodies, but scientists create them in the lab. First, researchers look for antibodies that target a specific virus, bacteria, or other disease-causing organism. After the most potent antibodies are found, scientists produce them in large quantities. This creates a medical treatment for a disease. When you get sick with that disease, doctors can treat you with monoclonal antibodies through an IV. Once inside your system, the monoclonal antibodies target the infection that is making you sick. They block the ability of the infection to enter your cells. This weakens the infection, allowing your body's immune system to fight it off. Okay, so now you get an idea. Monoclonal antibodies, many of them are black triangle. Many of these antivirals are black triangle. Many of them are experimental. And most of the monoclonal antibodies that we've heard of before have been used for HIV and cancer. So just to give you an idea. So if you test positive or false positive for COVID and you're in hospital or you're in a care home, or maybe you're, you've gone in for an outpatient appointment and you haven't been very well and you've had to stay over overnight perhaps, you will automatically, if you're COVID positive, be rooted on to the NICE guidelines, the National Institute of Clinical Excellence, NG191. Uh, okay, so that's NICE guidelines, NG191. Now, this is the COVID-19 rapid guideline managing COVID-19. And you can see there the disclaimer when I just put that because of the, the name of it was Magic App Publication Platform. Uh, your data goes absolutely everywhere. But once you've taken a positive test, you will automatically go on to the COVID-19 rapid guideline, which is managing COVID-19. So how does that equate with the MHRA? Well, the MHRA have got their very own protocol. And I'm just going to show you a couple of screenshots. But if you go on to the PowerPoint presentation, you can roll straight down it. There's eight slides. And you can see there that they're using um, monoclonal antibodies. They're using remdesivir. They're using sotrovimab. Anything with an MAB on the end is a monoclonal. Anything with VIR on is an antiviral. So the MHRA have their very own protocol. Now, what concerns me is that once you are on these monoclonal antibodies and these antivirals, many patients don't know they've even had them. Uh, because as soon as you test positive, and these are anecdotal stories that we're hearing, in some trusts, they'll move a positive patient to an, a, a COVID ward, a red ward. And in other trusts, including Cornwall, they will apparently close the whole ward down. So if you've got one person that's tested positive, the likelihood is the whole ward or the whole section of the ward, maybe a six or eight bedded unit, will be closed down. So all patients will be isolated. And at that point, 
you are on your own. You are literally on your own. You haven't got any relatives or any family to ask any questions. You're not feeling very well and you're going to be given potentially some very toxic drugs. Are you aware of what you're getting? Because then if we look forward to, and I'm just taking the University of Birmingham as, as, as an example for this. So just jumping forward, if you look at the end of life care for patients with COVID-19, and this is still in date to the 31st of January, 2023, you can see that the end of life care for COVID-19 includes midazolam, lorazepam, of which the government have stockpiled, I might add, morphine, haloperidol, and at the bottom there, it says the dosing. And horrifyingly, it says for those patients in great distress and likely to die soon, then it may well be best to prescribe repeat after 20 minutes, if not comfortable. I mean, we're talking about drugs like midazolam here. It also says deliberately there are no maximum doses per 24 hours stated for the drugs. So by testing positive for COVID, what I'm saying is it could potentially put you on this NG191 pathway, but not just adults. This is children and babies as well. And that's what shocked me more than anything. And we are getting calls from parents whose children are isolated in hospital because they've tested positive for COVID and they don't know what their children are getting. This has come from the Royal College of Pediatrics and it's the COVID-19 Guidance for Management of Children. And you can see there that after a PCR test, babies and children are given medications like remdesivir. So what my, my big message is, is do you know what you are getting? Do you know what your relatives are getting in hospital? Do your relatives know what they're getting in hospital? Do you know what you're getting in hospital? Probably not. And if you think you've dodged it, because you haven't tested COVID positive, so you couldn't possibly have a monoclonal antibody or an antiviral winging your way, think again, because monoclonal antibodies are big business and they're coming down the pipeline for pretty much every disorder and every disease you can imagine. I've just put a few, few examples just to give you an idea. So you've got rheumatoid arthritis, you've got cancer, you've got Alzheimer's, you've got osteoporosis, You've also got monoclonal antibody immunotherapy and psychiatric disorders. You've got monoclonal antibodies being used during pregnancy. And there you can see treatment of infants and children with monoclonal antibodies. So this is big business. And I really think it's a very important message because every single day I'm hearing from people whose loved ones have either gone in the front door of the hospital and gone out the back door or have come out the front door very, very poorly. So once you're sick, and this is where we go back to Dr. James Giordano, we're not looking at mortality, we're looking at morbidity. So people that have had the injection, who become very ill and then seek further hospital attention, if they test positive for COVID or they're given another drug, it could be something just as toxic that you don't know about. So I just wanted to put that message out, but it's all in my blog if you want to go and check that out too for this week. Thank you to Alex. Yeah, thank, thank you for that, Debbie. And we can see from our chat box that that section has made an impact on people 
And uh, we've just encouraged people to research the references that Deb Debbie's put on screen. Okay, over the last couple of weeks then, there have been quite a number of uh, hit pieces in the mainstream press. So I just wanted to uh, cover this. This is hit pieces on uh, people that are uh, active uh, against lockdown and other issues. Let's have a look. Here's The Guardian. Uh, I was wrong how COVID conspiracy conspiracies became a gateway to extreme views. This is by Ben Quinn in The Guardian. Uh, nearly three years on from the start of the pandemic in Britain, however, there was a stark reminder of the continuing reach of conspiracy theories on Wednesday when Tory MP Andrew Bridgen lost the uh, party whip after comparing the use of vaccines, of COVID vaccines, to the Holocaust. Not sure that's what he did, but that's what the Guardian claims. Uh, Lewis's journey away from the beliefs that once enveloped his life, meanwhile, stands in contrast to others for whom COVID-19 conspiracy theories have acted as a gateway drug to other more extreme views. Um, so let's have a look at who they're talking about. Uh, over the past several years, particularly during COVID, we've seen an increasing hybridization of extremist and hate movements and conspiracy theorists, said Tim Squirrel, head of communications, the Institute of Strategic Dialogue. Uh, networks built over the pandemic have not gone away. We are still seeing so-called sovereign citizens seeking to shut down vaccination clinics with pseudo legal arguments and accusations of crimes against humanity. Uh, but we're also seeing people who came to prominence during the pandemic moving on to different issues, taking their audiences with them. Uh, Save Our Rights UK uh, comes uh, for attack here. Uh, so that's one of the, uh, the organizations. But uh, I thought it was particularly interesting that they decided to go for the Hope Community Hub, the Hope Sussex, that's uh, Katie Jo Murphan's uh, organization. Uh, in another area, they say some of uh, some who were at the forefront of anti-vax activism and fomenting conspiracy theories have been pouring their energies into homeschooling. Naughty people, Brian. Well, of course, it is very dangerous for this state because if you home educate and your children are brought up with the truth and access to proper facts and data, that is a huge threat to this government, which is ruled by lies, deceit and propaganda. So the, the government is frightened. Uh, but it doesn't there end there. Here's the Times. Death threats as lies spread about Oxford traffic lockdown. Uh, and they say councillors in Oxford have been receiving death threats after a conspiracy theory about a scheme to reduce traffic in the city spread around the world. Uh, their officers are fielding thousands of calls, emails, letters and social media messages from people angry at authorities for plotting a quote, lockdown to combat climate change and prevent residents from leaving zones dividing the city. I was just going to add that, just remember earlier on in the news, we are showing that the British Army is working on climate change. So, yes. Uh, yeah. But, but anyway, uh, here's the BBC's coverage of the same thing. Oxford residents dubbed guinea pigs over traffic policy. Uh, a trial scheme to reduce car traffic in central Oxford, because it's only just a trial scheme to reduce traffic in the centre of the city. Don't worry about it, Brian. It's, it's nothing to worry about. Uh, has drawn the ire of activists promoting conspiracy theories online. But why exactly? Oxford residents may have been surprised when they opened their post boxes in the last week. Uh, Hello, guinea pig, said a leaflet delivered to many homes across the city. It appeared to be decorated with the Oxford coat of arms. But instead of depicting an ox crossing a river at the centre, uh, this version showed a guinea pig instead. Uh, and of course, what's this about? It's about the activist group, Not Our Future. Uh, we uh, highlighted the Oxford event before Christmas and then we uh, mentioned the, the date of it uh, as it was uh, coming up in January. Uh, and of course, many, many people turned up in Oxford to deliver leaflets around the place. 
uh, but uh, Oxford City Council, or uh, sorry, Oxfordshire County Council, not very happy about it. But anyway, the BBC uh, goes on to say that the scheme was also wrongly linked to a separate council proposal to ensure that every Oxford resident has shops, healthcare, and parks within a 15-minute walk of their home. The concept was dubbed 15-minute neighborhoods. And for many of the users sharing these distortions online, it was part of a sinister plan to limit people's freedom of movement. Uh, for its part, Not Our Future claims its mission is to fight for the survival of, of our way of life as we know it. But references to common conspiratorial tropes can also be found on the group's website and social media accounts. This is so pathetic. But anyway, uh, including baseless claims about COVID-19, the World Economic Forum and climate change. So uh, this is uh, the, typical of the types of attacks that we've been seeing in the mainstream press. Uh, in uh, over the last couple of weeks. Uh, it's a bit sad, uh, but I just wanted to also uh, end this little segment with this article from Cornwall Live. Uh, protesters in Cornwall take to streets to defend the right to strike. Uh, and these are people holding up RMT banners and so on. And really what I wanted to comment here, Brian, was uh, how few there are out. Uh, and really, I think we need to see many, many more people out uh, actually getting their views across and communicating with people uh, than, than this. Well, this is, of course, why we're always encouraging people to share our material and talk to other people and spread the word. It's, it's spreading the message and the facts, which is the key thing. But the BBC, I'm going to suggest, also desperate uh, because they know that they've now got to be proactive in trying to crush anybody who's now telling the truth about these World Economic Forum globalist agendas. And of course, uh, it's either coming in from the World Economic Forum or the UN or UNESCO in the case of the Education for Children. And this is fact. So the BBC, desperate. Um, uh, related to Alex, uh, Mariana Spring. Yes, uh, the BBC who panic watch and hate watch us as we know they do at managerial level should perhaps be asking themselves why defection is only ever one way from their persuasion to ours and often directly from their organisation to ours. Uh, but that is the trend. And here is a BBC source who has uh, emailed us regarding Mariana Spring, the queen of BBC anti-disinformation. Uh, the source says you were talking before Christmas about the BBC's wondrous Mariana Spring. I worked at the BBC for many years until the end of 2021. Now a UK column viewer. Doesn't happen the other way around, does it? I vaguely remember Mariana's unusually jolly name cropping up at the start of the pandemic. I assumed she was one of the members of the Reality Check team, which long predates Mariana Spring. The source adds, this team was set up around 2017, 2018 to tackle fake news, as it was called, under the then head of news, James Harding. Uh, we've reported on him before. We used to comment on how well-staffed and well-funded this team was, while other teams were increasingly stretched. Of course, I know why now, says the source. The source ends, excuse the pun, but Mariana did rather spring from nowhere. I've never seen someone so young land a network TV reporter job. It's really not the norm, and I can only assume there must be other forces behind her meteoric rise to the fore. Yes, okay, and uh, let's move on then with uh, Matt Hancock. Indeed, uh, Matt Hancock uh, brought out, uh, I think we're supposed to call them tropes now, aren't we? It's even been on Coronation Street. And, uh, you know, anti-Semitic trope is what the young characters say to each other to anchor that idea in the population. Hancock got all the tropes in uh, when bashing his former uh, fellow member of the Parliamentary Conservative Party, Andrew Bridgen. Uh, he asked a question uh, in Parliament and uh, 
There it is, the disgusting and dangerous anti-Semitic, anti-vax, anti-scientific conspiracy theories spouted by a sitting MP this morning are unacceptable and have absolutely no place in our society. And he raised that during Prime Minister's questions, uh, to which uh, Kenny, our social media man, rose to the challenge and uh, this morning asked Mr Hancock directly below that gloating tweet, do you know what you're talking about, Matt? The reference is to a newly published uh, opinion piece in the comment section on our homepage by Ian Davis, who always comes up with the goods. Now, this, of course, is an opinion piece. Uh, as you can see from the title, it is time to stand up to those who contort the meaning of anti-Semitism. I know people might pick me up on the lack of inverted commas in that headline, but such is the sensitivity of it now that I went through it, that removing any quotation marks around Holocaust and anti-Semitism for fear that people would cast a glance at it and say, huh, UK column is doubting the Holocaust. So instead, I'm using an italics for the term. Uh, I won't read all of what's on screen. We're getting to the pinch for time now. But that is the conclusion of Ian Davis's well-researched opinion piece. It's not the first time he's written on the definition of the Holocaust uh, established by the, uh, the powers that be and by those who genuinely advocate for the survivors of the Holocaust and in memory of them. Ian concludes those who flagrantly abuse the intended meaning of the term anti-Semitism do nothing but dishonor those victims. They should be thoroughly ashamed of their conduct. He's talking to you, Matt Hancock. But that would require some intellectual honesty and a sense of morality on their part. Do they possess either? For my own part, I would just say this is one of the most uh, bathetic, not pathetic, but bathetic, bathos moments I've ever heard in the House of uh, Commons, people being deplored for anti-Semitism for, let's remember what Mr. Bridgen said, uh, for saying that I'm being told this is the worst since the Holocaust. Of course, uh, any time after 1945, the worst crime in the interim is the worst crime since the Holocaust. If, if Mr. Bridgen is being told he's very bad and wicked for saying that, we're actually being told that nothing is number two crime. Everything else is three or below. There is no number two. There's only the Holocaust. Yeah. OK, thanks, Alex. And we have a little bit of video here from GMB this morning. Yeah, it seems quite appropriate. Um, let's watch it, listen it, listen to it, and then we can talk. For a war that has led to the deaths of thousands and thousands of people and misery for, for countless people based upon lies mm. from men to be jet-setting around the world, able to earn millions Which afterwards. politician would you like to write a book? I'm not interested in that book. In any? So that <laughs> no, you don't want any politicians? Are there any politicians you like at all? Um, no. Should, they, <laughs> should politicians exist? Yes, politicians they should, should exist. Politicians so you actually believe in democracy? Exist. Actually, do you know who I do like? I like Andrew Bridgen, MP, because you mm. can talk about the things that he said, but one thing I really admire about him right. is the fact that he puts his beliefs and what he believes to be true and what he believes to be right, um, he puts those... Is it Andrew Bridgen who's been suspended as a Conservative MP for spreading lies is, about well, vaccines? Well, I, I personally don't think he's been spreading lies. I think oh. he's been spreading uh, many things that are true. So what he said about and, the vaccines uh, was true? Well, there are many medical professionals, cardiologists, that actually okay. agree with what he said. So the okay. debate isn't just one-sided, but the so point is... So it depends is, what's in the book. But the point is, is that too many of our elected representatives actually care more about their political career and the number of right. books that they can sell, rather than sticking to the truth, what they believe to be right. true, and representing their constituents. That's the point. Okay. And Boris Johnson, I'm afraid, is not one of those people who's more but, concerned but about how... The vaccine denying Andrew Bridgen is OK. Yes, well, uh, this conversation has gone in a direction I hadn't anticipated, so let me get me... First of all, get back in well there we are it wasn't going in the right direction and oh dear i've got a problem but uh, that lady i think uh, deserves a lot of credit because she stuck 
to her opinion. And of course, her opinion was not only her opinion, she was justified in saying what she did. Uh, but the desperation to shut her down, not to investigate what was actually said about uh, matters to do with vaccines, we've got to shut the debate down. And this shows us again that control of the media is across the board. This isn't a decision that's been taken by one area of the media. We're seeing it across the board and the control is obviously coming from an extremely high level. Okay, let's end with a couple of uh, finalists. Uh, Debbie first. Oh, well, I just like these. They made me chuckle a bit, um, bearing in mind the news from the Bidens and all of these documents that they've got stashed in the garage and next to the Corvette. So these two memes I thought were very very good. Uh, the Bidens cook up a cunning plan to get rid of the evidence. And of course, the first one you can see Mrs. B Dr. Biden masked up, of course. Joe isn't masked up, but they're having a garage sale and all the classified documents are in the boxes. And the other shot is of Mrs. Biden, un sorry, Dr. Biden, unmasked, burning all the censored papers in a frying pan on the hob. She won't be having a gas hob soon because um, I think carbon net zero they'll be disappearing but yeah i just I thought they were rather good i think that was actually spirit cooking debbie oh was it thank you thank you for that uh, and alex <laughs> more sense yes my and finally isn't even a joke uh, it's reality and something to be welcomed um last night uh, scotland was in a furore over the westminster government's decision to countermand uh, to cassate in some people's legal language, the Scottish Parliament's uh, legislation on gender self-identification, which David has been covering. That was the hot news yesterday. Nicola Sturgeon uh, jumped into the fray and called it a full frontal attack on our democratically elected Scottish Parliament, that monstrosity in front of which David spoke, and its ability, oh, look, a grocer's apostrophe, to make it, oh, another grocer's apostrophe, its own decision on devolved matters. The Scottish Government will defend the legislation, ampersand, too lazy to type AMD, stand up for Scotland's Parliament. If this Westminster veto succeeds, it will be the first of many. And this was retweeted by a lady who asked the usual slogan questions. I don't know with what sense of irony, but trans rights are human rights, which you often hear Scottish Greens and MSPs of the Scottish National Party saying, and asking the question, you yes yet, for those uh, abroad, this is the, the code language used in Scotland and Wales now to ask people, why do you not support the national independence movement yet? And now, no lesser figure than the Reverend Stuart Campbell, who runs the Wings Over Scotland blog, one of the three big hitters of the independence referendum first time round in 2014, uh, quote tweeted that, uh, that question, is he yes yet? He was one of the leaders of the whole movement. And he says, no, thanks entirely to you useless creeps and your rapists charter, I'm the least yes I've ever been. And Kelly Jane Keane last night, one of the bravest feminists I think we've ever had in Britain, with a worldwide following now, did say as well last night in the live stream that this is a big moment for people actually to be dissuaded from the whole of the Scottish and Welsh independence movements when they see what kind of sexual filth is being pushed by its advocates. Yeah. Yeah. OK, well, Alex, Debbie, thank you very much for, for that. Thank you for joining us. Uh, just say a few people having problems uh, with the stream. There is no problem with the output from UK Column. We know this because we check it. And so we encourage people who are having difficulty to check their own equipment. Talk to your internet provider because the problem is not the UK Column end. And also say we're getting a very large amount of feedback now from members of the public about matters to do with vaccines and vaccine harms. 
Uh, we are doing our best to cope with that, but if there's a delay or you don't get an answer, um, it's not because we're not concerned about your plight. We certainly are. This is to do with capacity. And uh, Well, we'll be back in a couple of yeah. minutes for some extra. Okay, thank you very much for joining us. Bye-bye.